Well, the first thing we need to start with is that the Negro spiritual was wrong. Joshua didn't fight the Battle of Jericho. But the walls did come tumbling down. Joshua didn't fight because it was God's commander who led the attack on Jericho. We started off with this story of Joshua meeting this person outside the city. He was there trying to work out what he should do to attack Jericho. And there he met the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua, like Moses before him when he saw a burning bush, was told to take the shoes off because he was standing in the presence of God himself. He was before the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, as a well-instructed congregation, you probably know that when you get the word Lord, all in capital letters, the actual Hebrew text has the personal name of God. Which, if you're old enough, you thought about it as Jehovah. If you're young and you think you're quite up to things, you probably pronounce it Yahweh. And if you're really academic, like Dan, of course, you, you probably talk about the Tetragrammaton because it's just four letters in Hebrew. The personal name of God. The Jews got rather worried that they'd take the name of God in vain, so every time you got the word Yahweh, they said Adonai, which is Lord. And that's come into our texts as well. You have to use the Jerusalem Bible if you want to read about Yahweh. But anyway, it emphasizes that this man who appeared, this was the commander of the army of Yahweh. The God who had revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to Moses... And the ground was made holy by his presence. Now some people would go even further. And they'd say, whenever God appears in human form in the Old Testament, it's actually the pre-incarnate second member of the Trinity. The one who was born as Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. That he is the one who's come to lead the attack. Our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, fought the battle of Jericho. And the walls came tumbling down. Now, maybe as you've begun to go into the book of Joshua, you've begun to feel a little bit uncomfortable about all this slaughtering of people that's being talked about. And of course, we get to the first slaughter today. And when Dan sort of wrote to me and said... um, Um, this is the passage you're preaching on he said I mentioned at the beginning that people should just put on one side for the moment this question about the killing of the Canaanites he didn't actually say because I'm waiting for you to come and deal with it (laughs) but I read the subtext there and so I am trying to focus a little bit on that today now um there's a bit of comfort for you if you're worried about all the Canaanites that were killed. In the newspapers, I think it was about a fortnight ago, there was suddenly the announcement, Canaanite DNA has been found in Lebanon. 
So if you're really worried about the Canaanites all being slaughtered, you know that somewhere in Lebanon there are people who've got Canaanite DNA. So there's there's a lifeline there. But some people, when they get to this question of the Israelites killing all the Canaanites and the wholesale destruction that took place at Jericho, they want to talk about it and they say, well, you know, this is a very primitive people who probably didn't really understand what God had said to them and they went and killed all these Canaanites and, well, they shouldn't have done it really, but... Well, what can you expect? Primitive people a long while ago. Well, the problem is, we can't get out of it that way. Because, as I said, who is it who leads the attack? It's the commander of the army of the Lord. It is, if you wish, Jesus Christ who's leading it. It puts God right in the centre of the action. It is God who is saying to the Israelites, this is what you are to do. The reformer Calvin, John Calvin, Jean Gauvin, that great French reformer living in Switzerland, he understood this, that God was at the centre of it all. And in response to the question as to how can we see God carrying out this judgment, this destruction of all these Canaanites. This is what he wrote. The indiscriminate and promiscuous slaughter, making no distinction of age or sex, but including alike women and children, the aged and decrepit, might seem an inhuman massacre, had it not been executed by the command of God. But as he in whose hands are life and death, has justly doomed these nations to destruction. This puts an end to all discussion. So, what is Calvin saying? He's saying, well, if God said we were to do it, said they were to do it, it's right. We cannot question what God commands. After all, of course, Questioning what God has commanded is why this world has got into such a mess in the first place. What was it that was said to Eve, the first words of the serpent in Genesis 3? Has God said? And the whole temptation was a question, do you believe the word of God? But of course, modern minds, we like to ask our questions. And this, of course, is the point at which uh, many preachers would say, and this is a great and difficult question that we haven't got time to deal with now. After all, I've only got 22 minutes, and five have already gone. Um, But I'm going to seek to deal with it. We're into the question of what is to be done about evil in the world. We have all these various things that Dan referred to at the beginning of the service evil things happening in the world what do you do about evil the evil that is typified by the Canaanites and we shouldn't start looking at this 
from the point of view that sees the Canaanites as cuddly, innocent people, destroyed by an army of nasty Israelites. Canaan was polluted by idolatry. The Canaanites were evil people. Now, it depends which countries you think are the most evil in the world as to where you might picture these evil people. But the Canaanites were. Abraham had been told that God was going to allow the Canaanites over 400 years in which to repent of their sin, but in fact their sin would increase. And that judgment would come upon them. The destruction of the Canaanites is the removal of evil from the land that God had promised to Abraham and his children. Now, of course, it's not the first destruction of people that has been carried out in Scripture. And when we go back to Abraham, we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, towns we may have heard of, but there are no tourist trips there, I don't think. But Abraham stood before God on that occasion and said, God, if there are innocent people there, will you spare the the cities? And Abraham came out with a great question, a great statement to God. Will, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham believed in a God of justice. We believe in a God of justice. We know that all the evil and all the sin in the world, all the injustice in the world, God will eventually judge the world in righteousness. We have it in the creed, don't we? Come again to judge the living and the dead. So, whether you say, oh, I'm not sure about that, you've actually been saying it every Jolly Sunday. Or something like it. Now, God will judge the world at the end of time, but sometimes his judgment comes back into history. And that's what's happening here. We can't say that God likes to carry out his judgment. But sometimes, such direct action is necessary to prevent even greater evil, even greater sin, and a greater harm to many people. Now, what God does here, is not a mandate for any human-directed genocide today. Here is an action of God. We may not fully understand it, but we do know that it's taking place at a particular time in God's revelation, a particular point in salvation history. And we aren't standing at the same point today. Whenever we look at the Old Testament... We always look at it through the, through the spectacles of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We ask ourselves the question, how are we to look at this in the light of 
Jesus having died and being raised from the dead. What happened at the cross of Jesus Christ? Evil, sin, death were all destroyed. Because God himself said in the person of his son, now do all the evil you can ever do to me. Sorry, I need to be careful, don't I? (coughs) Too many microphones. Christ received in his own person judgment on sin. And by his death, And his resurrection, by being the one who said, do your worst to me, I will accept it into myself. He destroyed sin, defeated sin, and opened the way into eternal life for us. Israel is just entering into the land. They've crossed over the River Jordan. They're going in with a mandate. A mandate from God. The mandate that was given to Abraham, to given to Moses. Given now, you're to go into the land of Canaan and remake Eden. And become a kingdom and priest to God. Become a testimony to the world around of what God wants people to be. How God wants people to live. You're to be a blessing to all the other nations of the world. But we know that Israel were a people who weren't consistent in their witness to God. Think of when God revealed himself to them in Mount Sinai. What was the first thing they did? Here was God who'd spoken to them from heaven, given them the Ten Commandments. The first thing they do is say, oh, let's make a golden calf and worship that. The corrupting power of sin in the Israelites was very great. And the removal of the Canaanites and this great destruction was also intended to protect the Israelites from their influences. But of course, Canaanites survived. They weren't all killed. And their influence began to permeate into Israel itself. Joshua pronounces at the end of our passage that curse on anyone who rebuilds Jericho. But it happened. You can go forward in the scriptures. Look in your margins and find the cross-reference. You'll find when Jericho was rebuilt. When was it rebuilt? When Israel had become like Jericho. When Israel had become like the Canaanites. And finally, the sin of Israel was so great that God banished them from the land. They were sent into exile because they became sinful. Those who were called to be a holy people. But we, of course, today... We've seen Israel at its best. Obedient to God. Obedient to each stage of God. Doing that strange march around the city. 
blowing trumpets when they need to, shouting when they need to, doing everything that God told them to do. An obedient people, fulfilling God's will. I'm going to come in a moment to what we might learn from this passage for us. But before I come to that final section, I want to revisit that little story that comes just before the end of the passage. Turning from the destruction of the Canaanites to a wonderful act of mercy and of grace. Because amongst all the Canaanites, there was one woman and her family who were preserved. You looked at this a couple of weeks ago. But it's here again in the text, because it's something that we must see and understand. God's remarkable mercy to Rahab and her family. When the instructions are given for the destruction of Jericho, Joshua makes very sure that the two spies who had gone out go to secure Rahab and her family, that the promise might be kept. Why is Israel going into the land of Canaan? Because God made a promise to Abraham. Our God is a promise-keeping God. And if we are God's people, we are called upon to be a promise-keeping people. And that's right central here. And as you go on, when you get to the Gibeonites, you'll see the issue of promise again, won't you? Dan, of course, has read ahead and knows where the story's going, so that's it. But here, the spies are sent off into the doomed city to bring out Rahab. Rahab, who had marked her house with a red cord. There's symbolism there, but we won't get into it now. She's kept separate initially from the people. But eventually, she's integrated into the people of Israel to play a vital role. She has a son whose name is Boaz, who suddenly pops up in the book of Ruth. And from Boaz is Obed. And from Obed is Jesse. And from Jesse is King David. So Canaanite DNA flows into King David. And then we get into Matthew 1, suddenly we have the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And Salmon, Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. There she is. In the destruction of the city, she is saved. Why is she saved? It's not like at Sodom and Gomorrah where Lot was the righteous man who was brought out. Here is a Canaanite prostitute. But she'd come to believe in the God of Israel. She saw his power. She asked for protection. She discovered his grace And her life was transformed. She is a sinner saved by grace. So what lessons can we learn? First, that sin and evil have to be dealt with. Sin needs to be eradicated. 
if we are to live in fellowship with the living God. If we are to fulfil his creation purposes for people who love him and do not reject him to serve idols. If we haven't come to believe that in Jesus God has taken all the sin and evil of the world into his own person that it might be destroyed by his death and resurrection then at the end of the world we will not escape a judgment that is worse than anything that was visited on the Canaanites. Like Rahab, we have to identify ourselves with the God of Israel. We have to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm as worthy of destruction as the Canaanites. But Jesus has died. You have died for me that I might know God and that sin might be destroyed and that sin might be destroyed in me. And we find safety and life like Rahab did. We like the Israelites are called upon to be a holy people serving God in our generation. And we need to have a destructive attitude to sin in our lives. Those sins that would stop us fulfilling our vocation. Our Canaanites are not evil people in the world. But they're the sins that cling to us. The things that spoil our lives. The idols that we worship instead of the true God. Idols that need to be rooted out and destroyed. But finally, yes, I got my finally. Finally, I believe this passage calls us to a renewed belief in God and a trusting of Him and His Word. Calvin was right. We may find it hard to understand the destruction of the Canaanites, we may wish that we only had to rejoice in walls coming tumbling down. We may want to dwell on God's mercy to Rahab. But ultimately, like Rahab, we're called to believe in a God whose ways are not our ways, whose wisdom is past finding out. A God who calls us to trust and obey him in whatever he asks us to do. We're called to look at God and our own life through the cross of Jesus Christ, where sin and evil were defeated, and we were given entry into our promised land, a new heaven and a new earth, where there is only righteousness. And we become a people who say, you are our God. We believe your word, and we will be obedient to it. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Father, Teach us about yourself. Teach us to love you, to worship you, to obey you. To worship you only, that the idols may be banished from our lives and we may be a people who show forth your glorious deeds. In Jesus we pray. Amen.